Hey there, pole arms and pole legs, if you know what I'm saying. Welcome to The World is My Burrito, where I take a pop culture topic of my choice, unwrap it, review the ingredients for your tasting pleasure, then wrap it up, pack it in. Now, let us begin. As is tradition, I'm your benevolent host, Corey Torgeson, and today we're swinging in with episode 7, breaking off into a topic I should have covered months ago. I'm going to avoid my normal bumps and structure for the sake of time constraints. Today, we're going to talk about the historical significance behind the most badass female in Star Wars. That's right, Morgan Elspeth from The Mandalorian, Chapter 13, The Jedi. Before I go any further, I will say while there is plenty of confirmed info on this topic, there is a lot of contradicting or suppository info depending on your search term. So don't hate if you've read something contrary-wise because, heck, it may be romanticized or I may not have found enough agreeable evidence. If you're familiar with the background of Star Wars, you know how much it pulls from Japanese history and film. What with the first movie being Kurosawa's 1958 The Hidden Fortress reenacted in space. The biggest props I can give The Mandalorian are that, after so many decades, Star Wars finally returned to their roots of very obviously pulling from other Japanese materials. The series has been nice and nostalgic with their references to Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, and others. Enter chapter 13, where they floored me when Morgan throws down with a spear against Ahsoka Tano. I instantly recognized the reference to today's topic, the Onna Bugeisha. What the what is an Onna Bugeisha, you may ask? Well, first, let's do a breakdown of the word. Onna means woman, and Bugeisha is roughly a practitioner or master of a style of martial arts. Summed up, female martial artist. There is another new-to-me term that I've learned while researching that is Onna Musha. Musha breaks down into warrior person. Onna Bugeisha are typically viewed as part of the Bushi or warrior class, basically the bourgeoisie of the battlefield due to lineage, marriage, adoption, or decree, whatever. They're just not peasants, basically. They are most popularly known for using a spear-like weapon called the Ko Naginata. Now, this regular Naginata traditionally consisted of a 4-8 to eight foot shaft with a 1-2 to two foot blade affixed at the end. This was made for mowing down cavalry, horse and all. On the other hand, the Ko Naginata was a little smaller to accommodate for the user's smaller frame, increased maneuverability and quickness, and with the expectation to be used inside. This aside, they were also proficient with other weapons like the Tanto, which is more like a dagger, and I think the Kodachi, I couldn't refine the same article that listed some of their weapons. Anyways, it should be noted that information concerning what array of weaponry Onobugeisha used isn't as readily available because of how romanticized the Naginata is with their history. So what function did they serve? In most historical accounts, they were considered the literal last line of defense. Their husbands or male relatives were out on the battlefield, so they were at home tending to life, but with weapons training that could greet an enemy invasion. At the very least of this outcome, they could fight off some invaders, then die with honor. 
In more politically charged scenarios, they could also serve as a replacement ruler. Sometimes a daimyo and all male heirs would die and the only remaining relation, a sister or wife or what have you, would take up the mantle and carry the legacy like in the case of E. Nautora. There are accounts of females actively taking a stand against a family decree they didn't agree with then becoming their own self-proclaimed daimyo. In this case, they were called Onna Daimyo. If times were really tough, generals would assemble and dispatch troops of Onna Bogesha to fight alongside the men. In most readily available history, you can find many instances of women fighting, but it is usually in some super noble act, like the defense of a castle, and usually in some relation to a well-known daimyo or leader of some sort. Now, as more archaeological excavation and DNA data arrive from historic battlefield research, we can conclude that Onubugesha fought in many more battles than were recorded. As is tradition, the conquest of women, at least as far as being viewed as an equal to men or a necessity to men, seemed to be conveniently unmentioned from written history, even though their bodies were on the same battlefield. This is the fate of the non-romanticized participants of war. This also kind of goes back to my previous statement about Onubugesha being used when times were tough. It could be that they were actually relied upon in some instances, not just as a last-ditch effort. Now, where did they come from? This is a loaded question thanks to a lack of confirmed historical documentation. They primarily existed for military purposes between the Heian period of the 12th century through the end of the Sengoku Jidai in the early 17th century. As for non-confirmed legends, honorary mentions go out to Jingu Kogo, or Empress Jingu, who may or may not have existed in the 200s. Yes, that's 200. And Tomoe Gozen, who also may not have existed, there's much written about Tomoe Gozen, like her helping win some decisive battles during the Genpei War of the late 1100s, but her magnanimous feats and weapons of choice wax and wane depending on the era and, in some cases, the artist depicting her. Another blockade in learning about older history comes from an era called the Naginata Naoshi in the 1800s where many older Naginata were shortened and reforged into katana. Naginata were pretty pivotal in battle, so this was done to prevent anyone from possibly standing up to the new shogunate. Where did the Onobugesha go? After the Sengoku Jidai ended, there was made an era of peace, the Tokugawa shogunate, where samurai were made into bureaucrats and weapons were outlawed among the lower class masses. At this point, women were kind of relegated to serving their husbands and not much more. Men were in charge. Naginata training was more of a means to honor history. Uh, Naginata fencing became a thing. And real Naginata were more like a sign of wealth and honor than a tool for killing. 
it's a bit of a shame that throughout the many books on samurai and Japanese history I read in childhood, very few things really spend any time on, on the Bugeisha. The Naginata gets enough notoriety in history and is very romanticized in pop culture, uh, but pretty much dwindles down after that. That's pretty much it for that nugget of history. Um, Morgan Elspeth's weapon is more akin to a Japanese yari or spear, uh, but this was still a really deep pull and something I greatly respect. Kudos to them for going that route. And uh, if you haven't watched it in a while, just rewatch that episode. It is still really good. Hopefully you learned something today, or not. I'm not your sensei, I'm just a guy talking. As for personal things, uh, I've been reading several comic titles, including Ultra Mega and Noctera. I would recommend you check those particular titles out. Ultra Mega is kind of like Ultraman in Evangelion's universe, while Noctera is one of those where the sun has been blotted out of existence, every living thing can become some whack creature of the night. Oh, and uh, semi-truck drivers carry people across the country in vehicles decorated in what I can only describe as every cyberpunk idea you've ever had. Thanks for being patient and waiting for this episode. Life hasn't been getting any less busy these past few months, and in fact has only been getting busier and more interruptive. To the point that I should be moving to Tampa in the next few weeks. It's all for the better, so no complaints from this guy. If you want to hear my sultry voice elsewhere, you can find me and others on Podcasters Assemble talking about all three live-action Mortal Kombat films and the video game franchise. If you have any questions about today's topic or want to reach out to me, you can find me everywhere at Twimby Podcast. That's T-W-I-M-B Podcast. The email being at gmail.com. Uh, I haven't been posting much on there, but I do still pay attention to the notifications. Stay tuned for more things to come. I can't really give any projected dates because life, but I appreciate you sticking out with me thus far. Still ain't got that sign off. <laughs>